Good morning again. That was a hearty response I got there. Guys are really alive, I can tell. Uh, Well, this morning we are beginning a three-week series that we're titling Essentials. Uh, And essentially, at the beginning of each year, our intention was to do this at at the very beginning of the year, but... Uh, you know, we're a couple weeks in, but we want to remind ourselves uh, why we do what we do, who we are, uh, the essentials of what it means to be a church. Um, So uh, this morning and over the next three weeks, we're going to take a look at three essentials, uh, gospel foundation, gospel community, and gospel mission. And this morning, we're going to start by looking at our gospel foundation. So uh, if you have your Bible in front of you, you can turn in uh, your copy of the scriptures with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. First Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10, listen as I read. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, Hey, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire, fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let me pray. Lord, even as... Trevor prayed just moments ago, would you work in us by your spirit that this church would be built upon nothing other than the foundation of Jesus Christ? May our eyes and ears and hearts be fixed upon the good news the work that you have accomplished through your son, would, would this news, the gospel of your son Jesus Christ, be the, the, the animating heart of all that we do and all that we are? Lord, would you bless this time now as we look into your word and remind us again of the goodness of the good news. Nourish us, encourage us, strengthen us in our faith. And above all, Lord, would you glorify 
the foundation that is Christ. Glorify your son. We pray in his name. Amen. On November 7th, 1940, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge collapsed in a spectacular fashion uh, just five months after it had been finished. It was uh, a very impressive structure that at its completion was able to boast the third largest suspension bridge in the entire world. The construction workers who built the bridge nicknamed the bridge Galloping Gertie. Have you ever heard of this bridge? They nicknamed it Galloping Gertie because of the way that the bridge would sway and rock in the wind. Unfortunately, the engineers who built this bridge did not account for what would happen to the bridge above 35 mile per hour winds. And again, just five months after it was built, a uh, a storm blew through with sustained gusts of wind around 40 miles per hour through Puget Sound. And the bridge twisted and shook so violently that eventually it just completely collapsed. There's actually a video of it online. If you go home and watch it, it's pretty crazy. But the whole thing twists and shakes until it completely collapses. Now, the, the moral of the story is that how you build something... And the materials you use to build it are really important. If you fail to build wisely, whatever you're building will ultimately be swept away. That's the moral of that little true story. And it's actually the moral and the lesson of our passage. In the previous chapter, Paul uses a metaphor of a field to describe the church. And so the church then, our role is to sow seed and to water seed. And God provides growth, right? The church is is related to like a field and crops growing. But then he jumps to a different metaphor. He describes the church as a building, specifically as a temple. He says that by God's grace, He laid a solid foundation. And then he gives this important command to the church at Corinth. Let each one take care how he builds on it. Now, I think the first thing I should say is that it's possible that Paul means to emphasize the role that leaders have in the church. But he is writing to the whole church at Corinth and he says, let each one take care. Let each one take care. So what I take from that, brothers and sisters, is that you bear a God-given responsibility and privilege to build up the church. And Paul is saying, take care how you build. That take care means to, to watch carefully, to pay attention, to be diligent in how you do it. If you don't take care, if you don't pay attention, we can expect nothing less than a spectacular collapse. So this morning, that's the the question I'd like to ask. How do we take care 
to build up the church wisely? And our passage this morning gives us three answers to that question. How do we build wisely? Well, we need to build on the right foundation. We need to build with the right materials. And we need to build for the right reasons. You hear what I'm saying? We need to build on the right foundation. We need to build with the right materials. And we need to build for the right reasons. So first, we need to build on the right foundation. Uh, I, Trey isn't here. I was going to look at him because I'm, I have a bunch of construction analogies, and he's in construction, but he'll just have to listen to the recording. Uh, anyone that's in construction will tell you that the foundation of any building is the most important part of the build, right? If the foundation is off, then the building will never be right. If you have foundational structural issues, that's really, really bad. And so as we think about the church, the, the temple of the Lord, we need to be certain that we're building on the right foundation. Now look at verse 10. Again, Paul writes, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. And then jump to verse 11. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says that with grace-empowered skill and mastery, he laid a foundation for for the church, and that foundation is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. This is the foundation that was laid by the apostles, the foundation on which the church has stood for 2,000 years, Jesus Christ. Paul uses the exact same language and imagery in Ephesians 2 when he says this. Ephesians 2, you can just listen, verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Same kind of building metaphor. And then he goes on to say, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You can see all of the the, the connections, the overlap there between Paul's words, the Ephesians and the Corinth. The same themes of, of temple and building and foundation. And this central truth that the foundation is Christ. That Christ is the cornerstone. That Christ is the foundation. Now it's important that you understand what Paul means when he says the foundation is Christ. He's saying the the foundation, the ultimate substructure, the base of the church is the person and work of Jesus Christ. In, In other words, it is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. This and this alone is the foundation of the church. So everything we are, listen to these words, everything we are, Everything we do, everything we we say, everything we sing, everything that motivates us and drives us must be founded in this reality. It must be founded in the reality of the gospel that you have heard many times, but hear it again. 
There is a God who is holy and righteous. And that God has done everything necessary to justify and reconcile a sinful people to himself through the perfect life, the atoning death, and the victorious resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Such that every person, listen to me, every person that puts their faith in him is counted among those people, is assured of the full forgiveness of sins, is given life everlasting and receives the certain hope of all God's promises fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. This must be our foundation. Nothing more and nothing less. That God who justly and righteously ought to punish sinners, instead rescues them and saves them through the blood of his own son. It's for this reason that Paul, just a few sentences earlier in his letter, says to the Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. What is Paul saying? Is is Paul saying that when he came into Corinth, everything but Christ and Christ crucified left his consciousness? I don't think so. He's saying, when I was with you, that the dominant theme, the foremost topic, the, the preeminent subject of my speech, the most prominent note in my song was always Christ and him crucified. It was always Christ who who died for sinners. That was the preeminent theme of everything. That That was the theme of all that I said. It's why he goes on to say in chapter 15 of that same letter, chapter 15, verse 3, he says that he delivered to them, that is the church at Corinth, as of first importance, would I also receive that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. You see, he's saying the foundation of everything we are and everything we do is this, that Christ died for sinners. Do you believe that this morning? Are you resting in that this morning? Do you know that truth? Have you embraced that truth? Have you trusted this morning in this God who says, all that come to my son Jesus Christ in faith will know full forgiveness of sins and life everlasting? And not only is it the the foundation of everything we do and everything we are, it gives shape to everything we do and everything we are. All that we we do must conform to the contours of the gospel. Uh, Okay, here's another one of my uh, little construction metaphors. Imagine a foundation, okay, a building. Like imagine an actual building foundation, a house, and it's 30 feet by 30 feet square. That's the the construction footprint. And as you build the first floor and then the second, 
floor and perhaps the, the third floor, you must build those floors in such a way that they conform and are shaped by the foundation. Right? You can't put a triangle house on top of a square foundation. You can't put a, a cylindrical house on top of a square foundation. The house has to, to be fit to the, the foundation. As it builds up and up and up and up, it has to conform to the foundation of the structure. And so the church, in all that it does, must, must shape herself according to the, to the lines and the dimensions of her foundation, which is Christ himself. And so in our Sunday gatherings, in our life groups, in our relationships with one another, in our service to the community, in our relationships with unbelievers, in our prayer meetings, all of these things must be conformed and informed and shaped by this central reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is true collectively as a corporate body as well as for you as individuals who make up the body. Right? You, you will not grow. Listen to me. Would you like to grow in your faith in 2022? Would you like to be sitting here a year from now? And I know that, I, listen, don't get me wrong. I know growth, it's, it's a roller coaster. It's up and down. It's very rarely linear. But would you like to be sitting here a year from now being able to look back on the past year and see real spiritual growth. If that will happen, it will be because you have been strengthened and empowered and conformed more and more to the gospel. More and more to Christ himself. You will not grow as God intends unless that growth is empowered and informed and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, both in our personal walk with Christ and in the church at large, the gospel is never something that we move on from. The gospel is never something that we put behind us. It is the epicenter, the, the pulsing heartbeat, the, the nuclear core at the center of God's people. And so to move on from the gospel is to move on from the foundation of the church that makes the church the church. It is to leave what the Bible describes as central to what it means to be the church. The churches are built on the gospel and to build on anything other than Christ is to cease to be the church altogether. And listen, you, like I'm not you know this. Isn't this precisely why so many churches have been swept away? Because they have abandoned the gospel as their central theme. Because they have abandoned Christ Jesus, crucified for sinners, as their central theme and traded it for something else. Because they have made their foundation a social cause instead of the saving grace of God. Listen, did you hear me say that taking up some kind of social cause is a bad idea? Did you hear me say that? What is the central, foundational, animating principle of the church? They've traded in for their foundation tradition, 
instead of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Or they've traded in their identity as rooted in some legalistic moral system instead of the lavish mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Or they've made, listen, they've made political parties and politicians and platforms the foundation of their church instead of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Or they've made secondary doctrinal matters, translation issues and eschatological viewpoints and positions on spiritual gifts instead of standing on that which Paul says is of first importance, the gospel. Or because they've traded in, they've been happy to to build the foundation of their church on a charismatic personality instead instead of building on the sure foundation of Christ. One pastor, Ray Orland, asks this question. It's a, a question that I think is worthwhile for us to, to ask ourselves periodically. He says, what is there in our churches that deserves to survive? What is there in our churches that can survive? Any church of any denomination that falls short of the gospel of Christ in either doctrine or culture will inevitably collapse under the extreme pressure of our times. The gospel alone works with the power of God. Everything else, everything less, will be swept away. And rightly so. Brothers and sisters, there is one foundation. And no one can lay a foundation other than that which has already been laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. Joy Community Fellowship of Williamstown, may we never be a church that's known for a thing. Do you, do you know what I mean? May we never be like, like the homeschooling church or the pro-vaccine church or the anti-vaccine church or the super trendy church or the super intellectual church. Instead, let's strive to be known as a church that is built squarely on the gospel, that we would be known. When people come in this building, they would know this is a church built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, nothing more and nothing less. That at the center of all that we are and all that we say and all that we do, the the heart pulsing out from this church is an abiding faith and love for Christ because of his saving work. That more than anything else, it's the person and work of Jesus Christ that shines through in what we teach and how we live our lives together as the people of God. That the gospel alone is our foundation. So we need to build on the right foundation. Remember remember the question we're asking? Paul, there's this single imperative in the verse that I've read to you that is take care how you build on the foundation that has been laid. And we're asking the question, how do we do that? How do we take care? How do we build wisely? And the first answer to that question is we have to build on the right foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. But we also have to build with the right materials, right? It doesn't do any good to lay a solid foundation to, and to then go on to build the building with like cardboard and paper mache. So you've got to build with the right materials. Paul goes on to say, look at our passage, verse 12. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold... 
silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In addition to building on the foundation of the gospel, we must build with the materials that make for a building that lasts. That's the metaphor. A day is coming when our work will either stand or be destroyed, and and that will depend on the materials that we use. Now, Paul likens these materials to gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and straw, and they're, they're listed, I don't know if you caught this, but they're listed in descending order of value. But the reader is supposed to divide them into two categories. There's, there's good materials and there's bad materials. There's good materials that can withstand the day of God's refining fire, and there are materials that will ultimately be burned up. The gold, the silver, the precious stones are obviously the, the quality materials and the wood and the hay and the straw are those subpar materials that, that don't last. Kids, raise your hands. Are you paying attention, kids? Raise your hands if you have heard the story of the three little pigs. Do you know the story of the three little pigs? Okay, and you know that there are three pigs and they're all, they all are building houses, and some of them are more lazy than the others. So one lazy pig builds his house out of straw, and another lazy pig builds his house out of sticks. But then there's this one hardworking pig who builds his house out of bricks. And in the end, it's the pig who builds his house out of bricks that is able to withstand the wolf and his attacks. What you build the house out of matters. And that's the same thing we're seeing here in this passage. The the, the church is God's house. And so what we use to build God's house with matters. And so what are the materials Paul has in mind here? Right? Are you tracking with the analogy? You're tracking with the metaphor? Right? There's good materials and there's bad materials. We use the good materials. It will last. We use the bad materials. It won't last. What are the good materials? What are the bad materials? We're obviously not meant to take these materials literally. Right? He's saying we are to build with quality materials. So what are they? Uh, the passage isn't really actually overly clear about what those materials are. It would be nice if Paul was like, here, these are the materials. But he doesn't says, say that. But he does give us a little bit of a clue in the beginning of the passage. He says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, the little clue is in the word skilled there. That word skilled is actually the Greek, it's the, the root Greek word sophos, which is wisdom. So we, we get the word philosophy, a love of wisdom. It's the, it's, it's the word wisdom, which is why uh, if you have... Uh, a New American Standard Bible, or maybe you have a King James Bible. If Ginger was here, she'd have her, her King James Bible. And what the King James reads it is like a wise builder. That's how it gets translated. Like a wise, not, so our translation, ESV, a skilled master builder. In the King James, it gets translated, translated like a wise builder. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that wisdom is a pretty dominant theme throughout the entire epistle. In the very first chapter, Paul begins his letter. 
And over and over again, he addresses this theme of wisdom. He says in verse 17 that he was sent to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He says the word of the cross is folly, which is the opposite of wisdom to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. He says the world did not know God through wisdom of the world, but that God was pleased to save people through the folly of what we preach, namely the gospel, which is the real wisdom from God. He says that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise so that no one could boast before God and so that everyone would see that that God is the source of our life in Christ and that uh, Jesus himself is our true wisdom from God. So all throughout you see uh, Paul contrasting worldly wisdom with the wisdom from God, which is ultimately encapsulated in the cross. And the world sees it as foolishness, but hidden in what appears to be foolishness is actually true wisdom, is God's wisdom, is God's power. So now what do you think Paul means when two chapters later he says, like a wise builder, I laid a foundation. He's saying the materials of my foundation are nothing less, nothing less than the powerful word of God that has its epicenter and points to in all things the word of the cross, the gospel, which accords with the wisdom of God. You see, good materials are those materials that come from the word of God and accord with the wisdom of God. And bad materials are those materials that come from human wisdom and and worldly strategies that do not accord with the wisdom of God. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Good materials conform to the wisdom of God, encapsulated and centered upon the cross, the word of the cross. Bad materials do not conform to the wisdom of God, but conform to worldly wisdom. You see, worldly wisdom asks the question, what can we do with our own hands to build the church? Like those people in Genesis 11 who said to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. You remember the Tower of Babel. And you, you, you see, why, why would we want to do that? Why would we want to try and put our hands at things that, that we can do to, to make a name for ourselves, to get glory, to, to revel in our own accomplishments? And so we build with the same stuff the world builds with. We ask ourselves questions like, well, what, what, do, what do people want? We think we'll build the church by just appealing to what people feel like they they want and need. So we start programs, men's groups and women's groups and kids' programs and a parents' night out and fun events, and we invite consumerism into the church and teach people to ask the question, what can I get out of the church instead of how can I serve? How can I contribute? 
Now, again, did you hear me say any of those things is wrong? Did you hear me say kids' groups or men's groups? Or did you hear me say that? I'm not saying any of that is wrong. I'm asking the question, what are we trusting in to build the church? What are we trusting in to see the church grow in maturity and in number? We trust in programs. We put our trust in performances, right? This is another way that we can appeal to the worldly wisdom, right? We live in an age of entertainment. And so I've heard one pastor say, regrettably, that for many of us, our church services have been reduced to just like a concert and a TED talk. Why? Because that's what people want. That's what we think will draw people. And, and frankly, the reality is something like that does draw lots of people. But they won't be there ultimately to worship God or to grow in their faith. They'll be there because the worship band is tight and the talks are inspiring. They'll be there for the performance ultimately to be entertained, not equipped for ministry. So we appeal to programs, we appeal to performances, we appeal to popularity. What do I mean when I say that? We allow the message itself, the the thing that is the foundation of the church, we allow the foundation, the gospel message itself to be shaped by what's popular. Instead of standing on God's word, we curtail the message so as to offend the least amount of people. We, We drop words like sin and judgment and wrath we pick up social movements and political agendas instead of preaching the whole counsel of God. And we do it all to make a name for ourselves. But, but God, listen, God is unwilling that we should boast in anyone but him. And so he calls us not to build according to human wisdom, which will only end in catastrophe, but to, to build according to his wisdom, with the only materials that will last, that is the the word of God, the word of the cross as it's communicated in the scriptures. That's why, and remember, at the beginning of this year, we're asking the question, and we do this little series as a way to ask the question, why do we do what we do? And if you haven't noticed, everything we do on a Sunday morning centers around the word. Right? We call one another to worship and we hear God's call to us to worship as we read the word of God. So we read the word of God. We we sing the word of God. We pray the word of God. We preach the word of God. And then we see the word of God as it's expressed in the ordinances and the Lord's Supper and in baptism. In all these things, we seek to see again Christ crucified that we might live for his glory. John Newton once said to a young pastor, he said that there is no school like the school of the cross. There, there men are made wise unto salvation, wise to win souls. In a crucified Savior are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If we want to know what it is to build wisely, and to build with the materials of God's wisdom, we must take up the crucified Savior. We must take up the message of the cross. 
You see, it's when you encounter God in Christ Jesus again in his word on a Sunday morning that your heart is encouraged and your strength. It's when you receive the text message or the email, when someone encourages you with a word that you're, you're nourished and, and upheld and kept and empowered to move forward in faith. This is the very thing that is able to build up the church. Brothers and sisters, the word of the cross is foolishness to the world, and yet it is the very wisdom of God to build his temple, the church. And so we have to to build on the right foundation, and we need to build with the right materials. And lastly, we need to build for the right reasons. In any building endeavor, why you're building is as important as the how and what you're building. It will have a direct impact on how you go about building. Just think about it for a moment. If, if you're an architect or an engineer and your main driving motivation in your building is money, then you'll probably be willing to take some shortcuts if it helps your bottom line. Or if you're motivated as an architect by people's opinions of your work, you may be overcome by the pressure to meet deadlines or motivated by the building's aesthetic value instead of its structural soundness. And and I was thinking, this is sort of true in parenting too. I I know we don't all have children, but for those of you that do have children, or, or really building anything in your own personal life. But I, I've, parenting stands as sort of a ready example. In a way, when, when we are raising our children, we're trying to build. We're trying to build them, erect them into the people we want them to be. And your motivation for doing that will determine how you go about that building, won't it? It will change how you actually invest and build up your children. If your motivating factor, if your, motiva- your main motivation is you want your children to like you, then you're going to have it, as you seek to build them up and, and make them into the person you want them to be, you're going to have a really hard time saying no to them. Or if your driving motivation or the thing that is driving you is other people's opinions of you and your parenting, you're going to find in your building up of your children that you're harsh and overly demanding because you feel judged by people outside of you. So you see, why you're building has a direct impact on how you go about building. And so this passage here tells us three reasons for why we should go about this work of building up the church. And that will have a direct impact on how we go about that build. So first, we need to be motivated by the day and not today. Motivated by the day. That is the coming day of God's revealing fire when all of the work that we've done will be exposed for what it is. Look at verse 13. It says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In other words, one of the reasons that we need to build 
one of the reasons that ought to motivate us in our building up of the church is this coming day, is the coming of eternity. We're, we're called to build with an eternal perspective, not for quick, impressive results in a worldly sense, but by God's grace, we're building something that will last for eternity. Did you realize that? Think about all the earthly, worldly institutions that exist. Think about governments across ages and nations. Think about the institution of marriage. Or think about uh, educational institutions. The, you know, the, the great Ivy League institutions that are scattered across our country and all the different universities. And think about uh, corporate empires and social clubs and sports teams. They will all pass away. Every single one of them will pass away. But there is one institution that will last for eternity. One building. And it is the church. And so we're called to build with that eternal perspective in mind, knowing that a day is coming that will reveal our building. A day is coming when what we've built will be evaluated and tested such that the, the work that we've done will either be swept away or will last forever. forever. And so we're called not to be short-sighted in our work, but to take the long view, to be patient, to be deliberate in our work. What else should motivate us? Verse 14, it says, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now, that word there, reward, it's actually the same word in the original language as in 1 Corinthians 3. And this is one of those weird things. Like, I don't know why they, they change the word in the translation because you miss this. But if you have your Bible open, you can just look. Uh, one verse or a couple verses up from verse 14. Verse 8, this is where Paul is using the, the, the metaphor of a field. He says, he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. It's the same word there, wages. But for whatever reason, the ESV translators translate it as reward in verse 14. And it is a reward and I'll talk about that in a moment. But the idea is that we're, we're working for a master, right, who will give us our wages. So here's the, 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 the second reason. The first reason is we're to work for the day with an eternal perspective, not, not just for today, but knowing that the church is an eternal institution. But we're ultimately supposed to work to please the Lord and not to please people. Right, we can be ridiculed by the world, but it doesn't matter, right? We are looking for the commendation of God and no one else. And so as we build, as we engage in the work of the ministry, and, and, and as, as you are equipped for the work of the ministry to build up the church, what you're longing for is the commendation of God, whereby he comes to you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not the accolades or the praise of this world. So we work 
out of a desire to please the Lord and not to please people. And then lastly, we work because there is a heavenly reward. We're not ultimately working for earthly results, but for a heavenly reward. Again, verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Clearly what's in view, and I can, if you're interested in that last verse, a little confusing to you, I can talk to you a little bit more about it after the service. But clearly what's in view here is not a uh, a, a, a revealing judgment that is um, salvation or not salvation, right? What's in view here is the work that we've done in this life and the rewards that will accompany that work. And so what is the reward? Well, there's, there's one other place where Paul uses this language of reward. It's in chapter 9. And he's talking about his work and labor for the sake of the gospel. He says, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. There's a little hint there as to what this reward is. And I have, and listen, I have no idea how to fully unpack this or what the experience of this will be like, but it reminds me of Jesus and the way he's described in, in Hebrews 12. Do you remember Hebrews 12 where we're called to run the race with endurance, with our eyes fixed upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? There's a reward laid out for Jesus. And I can't help but think that in Christ, our inheritance and our reward is linked and contingent upon his reward. And do you know what that reward is? Do you know what it is that Jesus receives as a result of his perfect saving work? A heritage, a people, a reconciled people. So what, what is the reward that Jesus, having completed his work, looks out upon a, 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 an innumerable multitude of people that he has rescued to himself? And But now, he, get what Paul is saying. By God's grace, you have the privilege of sharing in that reward as God uses you as ambassador, ambassadors for Christ to win people for Jesus. So that if you can imagine it, in eternity, when we see the, 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 the eternal consummation of God's church, there will be people there who come up to you and say, because of your work, God at work in you, but because of the way God used you in your life and through your words and your actions, I'm here. Can you imagine what that day will be like? To have, who, I mean, who knows? Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people coming to you? And the reward that it will be to know that God 
graciously and powerfully and mercifully chose you to work in and through you to draw those people to himself, to to be the agent through which the gospel was spoken and the, the one who prayed prayers for their salvation and that God used that, that you might, that your joy might be full and all the more full in him as you see the way in which God worked through you to, to draw those people to himself. It's that, that's the kind of reward that we labor for. Not, not, not the, the silly things that this world has to offer. But an eternal reward. Well, let, let me close with this. You are absolutely and utterly insufficient for this work. That's a good, encouraging word to send you out on. But that's why Paul begins this passage with this phrase, according to the grace of God that was given to me. That's the, that's the banner that hangs over this entire passage. According to the grace of God that was given to me. Utter dependence on the grace of God. It was by God's grace and God's grace alone that he rescued you, pulled you out of the pit of your sin and put your feet upon the rock that is Jesus Christ, the foundation through which you have the forgiveness of your sins and and perfect right standing before him. And brothers and sisters, it is by the sheer grace of God that we will be empowered to go about this work together. If anything good, listen, if anything good will happen in and through this body, it will be because of the grace of God at work by his spirit. And that by the very design of God, so that there will be no room for us to boast in ourselves, but every reason to boast in the Lord and in his work, so that we all with one voice for all eternity will say, all glory be to Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the foundation of our salvation, your son, Jesus Christ, and we do pray that you would make it so that we, that there is, nothing else that we would even attempt to build on. That, that everything would be founded and, and, and rooted and grounded on your son, Jesus. That, that he came into the world and died for sinners. May this be the foundation of this church. And everything we do may it be conformed and shaped by the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the hope that is in the gospel. And I pray that if there are any here this morning that have not come to you in faith, that you would do that work even now, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would know forgiveness of sins and and life everlasting in Christ who is alone, our sure salvation and the promise of eternal life. Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters and pray that you would equip them and strengthen them with this word and that you would be glorified in their lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.